Um, we actually are going to just share kind of what we feel like the Lord's laid on our heart, and we're going to start with Steve kind of laying a little foundation, then I'm going to get up, and then we'll see if Steph gets up. How does that sound? <laughs> but she will. She'll get up, and she'll be like, I'm just full of the Spirit of God, and she'll speak this word that we all go, oh my God, that was incredible. Why don't she, why doesn't she preach more? Well, go talk to her about that. I would have her preach all the time, folks, just to set the record straight. Um, anyway, let's give a, a big hand to Steve. Thanks. The hands are getting smaller these days. I feel less and less desired. There was a time when the hands were bigger. I'm just kidding. I don't want anything like that. I'd literally love it if people were like, Steve, come up and share. And then you just stared at me. Okay? Um, I have 15 minutes, which means what you're going to get from me is half of an intro to a message I would have preached. Okay? Shut <laughs> it. Guys, we're going to talk about a theme of unity. And as you think about unity, it's one that you've probably heard many messages on, and none of them made sense because you're like, I don't know how to do that. I think differently. I am differently. And in America, the theme of unity is really, really hard because we're so independent. Unity just typically means do it my way. And the biblical picture of unity is drastically different. Uh, from the human perspective. From God's perspective, it's do it my way. But from our perspective, it's sir, yes, sir. <clears throat> what we're united in is a bunch, and that's what I want to read about. In Acts 4.32, it says the believers were together, and they were of one heart and one mind. <clears throat> now, when the scriptures talk about heart, it's talking about the core of a person, including their affections, Right? And their, their priorities, their heart. So where your treasure is, is where your heart is. That's how the scriptures cor correlate the two. So wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Wherever your desires, your affections, your priorities are, that's where your treasure is. Here it's saying that the church, the very first church, Holy Spirit birth, they were one heart and one mind. <clears throat> now Luke, the author... He was a physician, he was a doctor, he was a trained, learned man, and he chose to use two very different words to describe the church. One was heart, one was mind. And he says they were one in both of them. <clears throat> in describing how they were unified as a church. That's huge, and I think as our theme plays out, we're going to touch on this a lot. We're going to drill down and preach on what it means to be of one heart and one mind as Christians. Uh, there's another verse in Psalm 133.1 where David in the Old Testament is praising the concept saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant it is when there's a unifying factor here. <clears throat> now, unity is, is like I said, it's got to be dissected and it's got to be looked at from the point of Scripture what it means by this because it doesn't mean clones, right? It doesn't mean clones. It, it's, 
two very different people uniting, right? The very first example we have of this is in Genesis when man and woman unite and they become one flesh. They're two very different fleshes. It's true. Melanie, can you stand up for a second? Look at this beautiful lady over here. No, stand up taller. Longer, longer, longer. They have to have a chance to be able to gaze at such beauty. Very different than me, right? Two very different fleshes. Very different, not clones. Yet the scriptures expect us to be united as one flesh. There's, there's real truth and principle here. And then as it builds out from there, it talks about an entire church family that's to be united in the same way. Of one heart and one mind. Meaning that their affections, their loyalties, and their priorities are the same. And their minds, meaning their thoughts, their beliefs, the core worldviews and identities and belief sets that they live by and are governed by are also one. <clears throat> That's intense. And it's, this is something that the church, as far as we know, has had a hard time doing, especially in America, because the concept is so vague. And then we start throwing out exceptions. Well, what if this person believes in submersive baptism and this person believes in sprinkling baptism? How could they ever be united? <clears throat> this person over here believes in speaking in tongues and this person doesn't. How could they ever be united? <clears throat> the scriptures seem to think it's, it's very possible. Not only that, it's mandated. It's mandated. It's not optional. You know, the Catholic Church gets a lot of flack, most of it well-deserved today. But when you study church history, the creeds emphasize this concept of one church. Just one. On the whole earth. To the point where they would confidently proclaim that if you were not part of this one church, you were not saved that it was impossible to be saved apart from this one church. And the creeds proclaim it as one holy Catholic church. Because the word Catholic means universal. And that's how they described it. And that's where the term comes from. It was one holy universal church. And they believed the same truths the same doctrine because they were issued down from the leaders down and one of the requirements to be part of the church was to subscribe to those core tenets. If you did not, you were considered a heretic and you were put outside the church, which was the equivalent of being put outside of salvation. Now, this went bad because the leadership became very stately and began to use these things as weapons in very ungodly ways. But the truth that they were operating under from the beginning was a core biblical truth. That there is one church. And there is one faith. There is one set of teachings and one set of doctrines that we are to submit to with our lives. And anything outside of that is outside of the Lordship of Christ. 
We've got like seven minutes left, so here we go. <coughs> Why is unity so important? Let's look at Scripture and see if it has anything to say about it. In John 17, 20 to 23, this is what he says. I pray not only for these, meaning his core disciples here, but also for all those who believe in me through their message. So when my disciples go out and preach, anyone who believes because of that, I'm praying for also. That includes us, guys. <clears throat> May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so the world may believe you sent me. There's a so then phrase right there, guys. Look at that. The scripture gives us the exact reason why unity is so important. So the world may believe that you, Father, sent me, Jesus. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know you have sent me. And have loved them as you have loved me. Do you see what's at stake with unity here? This is the truth we're operating by. It testifies to the deity of Christ. The unity of the people of God being united. And I'm going to get into this in not just word but in deed. In relational unity and doctrinal truth unity. Is essential for the world to believe that Jesus is the Savior. <clears throat> no big deal, nothing major online here, except for the ability for the world to see Christ for who he is. The church has to be united. It has to, there's no other option, for it to be the church and to be on the mission that God gave it, which is to represent Christ rightly to the world. And unity is at the core of that, according to Christ at least, who repeats it twice in three verses. So that the world will believe that I am from you. That's the why, guys. Our unity testifies to the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be. Reverse that. Our disunity, our disunity screams to them that Jesus isn't really that. It screams to them that this, this guy who claims to be God and the Messiah can't even keep his own people together. There's no truth worth unifying over according to even the people that follow him. What is there that's desirous about that to me? <clears throat> Nothing. This is the truth we're faced with. We have to come toe-to-toe -to -toe with this. As we're talking about becoming disciples of Christ and learning what that means to be a hardcore apprentice of the Lord... Meaning your desire is to be like him. To be just like him. If your desire is not to be like him, you're not a disciple. And unity here is what's at stake. That the disciples of Christ are all unified in their mindset as we are disciples to this person. So, the church, the word ecclesia, which means technically gathering. It means called apart, called out, or set apart. But the way we understand that is separate, which it has the opposite meaning. It means set apart as a gathering, or rather an assembly. It's, it's coming out to a togetherness, meaning united as one people of God, or as scripture repeatedly claims, 
one body. One body. Here's the thing, guys. One body means that body is always on a united mission. Its primary mission is to survive. And therefore, every part of your body works as a teammate towards that mission. To be alive. To stay alive. Everything functions within your body in harmony to keep you alive. That's its mission. <coughs> he uses that as the analogy that we're one body and Christ is the head, meaning he makes the decisions. He decides what happens, when it happens, how it happens. He decides when the hand moves and when the arm goes down and when the leg reaches out. This is what Christ does. He decides these things. But the church itself actually means that. At the core of the word ecclesia is the concept of unity. There is no ecclesia apart from it. Now, Christian unity isn't something we create. This was amazing for me to see this. When I, when I began realizing, like, because you strive for unity, but it's not something we create. Christian unity isn't something we create. It's something we're baptized into. We are baptized into an already existing unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And we are welcomed into that unity through baptism. And we have the option to join in that or not. Some of you guys have been deficient in your education and you don't know who Tolkien is. And I understand that, so I'm going to be gracious here. But... In his book, The Silmarillion, he writes the beginning of this, this amazing picture of creation with God doing creation and his, his angelic beings singing this song in perfect harmony that is creating the beauty of creation. And from that, in the very midst of it, rises up this subtle disharmony. This, this song that is not in unity with the, with the Lord's song, in the harmony. And it's coming from Melkor, who is the Satan figure in this. And that disharmony begins to cause disruptions in the creation of the earth. Places, pits, and, and ugly places that weren't supposed to be there. And Iluvatar, who's God in this, has the option to shut him down or allow him to keep going and rather overcome him with greater harmony. And he chooses to let him do his thing. And he says in it that this this Melkor in his disharmony does not know that in the end his disharmony will be used to bring greater harmony in the end, right? It's beautiful. Tolkien's a master theologian. That's why some of you are missing out. But in this, he writes this and he paints, he captures the concept of unity so beautifully in this scene. So you need to read that if you want to See what I'm talking about in greater depth. Anyway, we're baptized into this. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In one spirit, we were baptized into one body. We were baptized into an already existing perfect unity. If you get anything from what I'm saying right now, get that. And if you come into this perfect unity and you bring disunity and you try to sow disunity like Melkor in the scene I just told you about in Tolkien, you are going to cause disruption. You are going to bring violation to the purpose and the mission of Christ and the witness of the church. You bring disruption. And the Lord is going to graciously deal with that if you are teachable. But if you are not teachable, he will graciously remove you from that. Do you understand? He will remove you from the disharmony because he requires unity in his people for the world to see him. 
There's a lot at stake here. Unity is at stake. Christian unity, to be more specific. At one point in 2 Chronicles 30, 12, uh, Hezekiah realizes they haven't been following the law and they haven't been celebrating the Passover like they were commanded to. So he's, he declares they're going to celebrate Passover early rather than waiting eight months for when it's supposed to be. And so he sends out a notice to all the Israelites and says, we're asking you all to come to Jerusalem. The king, the leadership, and the council have all agreed this is what needs to be done. And some of them laugh and say, we're not doing that. But it says the Lord was working powerfully to bring unity to Judah to join with them. In other words, the Lord is available and working to bring unity when he calls for it. Which, by the way, in the scriptures, he calls for it. (coughs) So that's to say this. It's not a human effort here. We've been baptized into an existing unity. All we have to do is be open and teachable to it. The scriptural mandate is there. And lastly, what I want to say is there's two primary elements to this. One, relational unity within the church, which I would say is the unity that most of us are most familiar with. Unity to us means that we're on good terms, right, relationally. There's not conflict, we're united in the same thing, but it goes way deeper than that. I don't have the time to do whole deep dives into it, but we will. But the core of it is this, that we're, relate, we're united relationally meaning that we both see Christ as Father and Lord, and we are moving together relationally in that direction. Other than that, you're separated from each other. Christ literally said, I came to bring a sword to separate even closest family members if you were not going to be relationally united with Christ. That's how serious unity is. The unity that we have relationally is from that. And you could read Philippians 2, 2 through 4. It talks about it. Colossians 3, 14 through 15 goes into that. But the second one is doctrinal. And this is the last scripture I want to read. In Ephesians 4, <laughs> you all know it already. You first principles students, you guys are out there everywhere. It's worth reading. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk Worthy of the calling you have received. And that's huge that he ties this unity to walking worthy of the calling you've received. And do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Now, he says diligently keeping it. This doesn't mean doing it as a hobby or you know it's a good thing and we should probably put some effort into it. He says diligently keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we'll dive into what unity of spirit really means when scripture talks about it. There is one body. This is what he's saying to be united in. There is one body. Not two, not three, not four. There's not a Catholic. There's not a Protestant. There's not an Anglican. There's one body. And one spirit, only one Holy Spirit. He's either active or he's not, but he's not both at the same time. Just as you were called to one hope, you have one hope, and that is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Anything else is hopeless. At your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. These two are huge. We say one faith again What Paul is talking about here is not meaning like we all have one ability to believe. Saying one faith, which means the teachings that have been passed down to us from Christ and his apostles. That is the faith 
that we have received and that we walk in. There is only one. One faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now look at This is how serious Jesus wanted unity to happen. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure. Measure. (laughs) I went full full Diane Arsenal right there. According to one measure of the gift of the Messiah's gift. One measure of the Messiah's gift. And he personally, look at what Paul says, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for this reason. This is why he gave some. For the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Guys, this is the doctrinal unity I'm talking about, meaning the unity of truth, of one truth. Jesus was so concerned about this that he gave five specific gift sets to the church personally for the purpose of equipping the saints for ministry and to build them up until they reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Growing into a mature man with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then, this is what he says, when that happens, here will be the fruit. And tell me what this fruit sounds like. This will be the fruit when that happens. Then, we as a church will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching or doctrine, depending on translation, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Do you understand that the relational unity is important, that we're united under the headship of Christ and we become one family relationally under one father who is Lord of all. And then he has given his church, which is a people who have united together as part of his body, he has given his church five specific gift sets whose primary function is to equip and build up the body of Christ until it reaches unity in the faith, meaning the teachings that have been passed down from Christ and his apostles, and in the knowledge of Jesus. This leaves no room for super spiritual thoughts or concepts like, I know Jesus in my own way. I have my own personal, intimate relationship with Christ, and he speaks special things to me. Great, he might, as long as it first lines up with the things that we're to be united under in black and white concrete truth. These are the core principles, the foundations of unity. Okay, that's the biblical foundation, and there's so much more. There's 30-something scriptures that I didn't even touch here that really emphasize unity, which you can look up on your own. But I want to leave you with that, that unity is at the core of the church's representation of Christ and at the core of our relationship with God. If we're disunified with Christ, what are we doing? If we're not united in one mission, one, and it's the mission Christ gives us, then what are we doing? 
We're, co- we're, we're so in disunity. And believe me, you do not want to be associated with Melkor. You don't. He's a bad guy. Some of you guys know him as Morgoth, but he's the same name. He's just a bad guy, okay? All you, buddy. Thanks, brother. They're all going to read the Silmarillion and be that much wiser. Yeah, then we'll all be so enlightened. I'm just going to take off. So he built a foundation, and this is really what we feel God's doing this year. Like, really feel like at the heart of everything, he is trying to unite and bring a church together in one-mindedness. Now, this one-mindedness isn't just personal. It's, it's on four levels. One, it's one-mindedness in your own self, that you're not some divided person on all different fronts. You don't know coming and going. You're serving the world. You're serving God. You're doing all this. He wants to bring you all together, personally united and established in him. Okay, and then the second part is in your family, that your family would be established. It would be one-minded. You're pursuing one thing together. Sure, you got other things, sports and school and work, but you're, you're after one thing in life, one vision. It's, it's much like, I'll, I'll tell you, just a quick affirmation like, or encouragement to um, Chuck Jr. and Will and who else was up here? Micah, all of you guys talked about this, the word one, one, one. It was a theme, and it's so refreshing to have just the worship team just prophetically confirm the word. Like that, we didn't talk about that. We don't have meetings where we talk about like, what's the theme this Sunday? And then we all kind of try to fabricate this this thing. We, we really just say, like, let's hear from the Lord. Let's fine-tune our ability to be led by the Spirit as sons and daughters. And that happens. And when it happens, I'm like, yes! It's awesome! We're flowing. There's something happening here beyond human abilities, right? It's like an, it's an encouragement to us all that the Spirit of God is alive and moving and working. And so there's this aspect of oneness in the family. Then the third point is in our church family. Now, when I go like this, I don't really mean technically church family. When I go like this and it points to um, the Benedict's Life Group, that's what I mean church family. I want you to start getting this in your minds. Like When we gather like this, it is not what I refer to as local church. It is local church, but it's more, in my mind, what God wants to birth is a city network, a a network of churches. Like, life groups aren't there yet. Leaders aren't there yet. But that's what really is in my heart, is when we talk about, like, church family, we're talking about that. Then on the fourth realm is this idea of network, We're a network of churches across a city. But then we also have people in Maine, and we have people in Laconia, and we have people overseas, and we have all these different aspects of this network of churches, and there's a one-mindedness and unity there, some of which you contribute to as benefactors to see that expand, the expansion of the gospel. Some of you will actually be part of expanding that. But your real sense of local unity is manifest right here. And I want to look at, um, I know you're going to be so surprised, and it's pretty cool that Chuck shared this, but Isaiah 61, if you look at it really quick, I see this as a blueprint of 
really what God has for us. It's been a blueprint for our church from the, from the very beginning. We feel we have an Isaiah 61 mandate on us, that we are called to see God manifest and fulfill all of this right in our midst, that each one of us can taste this and sense it and live it. So I want to just look at it because you may not have read it the same as when I read it, I saw things. But um, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn giving them garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, cloak of praise instead of a disheartened spirit. So they will be called oaks of, we're going to stop right there. So they're going to be called oaks of righteousness, planting of the Lord that he might be glorified. So right there, okay, there's, there's three sections in this Isaiah 61. One is about people being renewed, healed, set captive, set free. Those who have a spirit of heaviness, given praise and oil gladness. There's like a divine exchange that takes place through this whole first part of the Isaiah 61. And it's basically, the, there's this declaration like, the spirit of the Lord's upon me and I'm going to make wrong things right. This is this whole aspect of Isaiah 61, a healing house, right? Everyone come and be healed. If you're captive, you'll be set free. If you're depressed, you'll be given oil of joy and gladness. It's all of these things. But, and if you notice in these other passages we get to, in this, or this, these other sections, you don't see that anymore. It shifts. And I'm wanting to challenge you that part of being one-mindedness in this is that you're willing to say, it is time to grow up beyond my previous vices of fear, of depression, of all these things, and have a real encounter with Jesus, that that becomes your past. And it is possible. If you've struggled for a long time, I do not believe that you want to stay bound. But listen, folks, if you truly encounter Jesus, you will not be bound any longer. That is just the truth. And so if you are still bound, I challenge you, find God. Find God and step past your fears and all of those things because he has sons and daughters, not slaves. So when we look at this, this final transition where we land in part two is that they'll be called oaks of righteousness, planting the Lord. What does that mean? You know, trees are about establishment, planting. You've never seen a giant oak tree jump up and move a block. Right? Trees plant themselves. They go deep. They weather storms and droughts. Nothing shakes them. Yeah, they might lose a limb in a storm, but they just keep growing. And they stand. And that is community. That's what it's like to be established in the household of faith. You become planted, rooted. And not only do you become not unshakable, you begin to provide shade and fruit for others. You begin to be a pillar in the house of the Lord. That's what that means. You provide blessing to others. Now, this next aspect is what um, just thrills me the most. I wish I could just preach on this all the time, but I can't. You don't get to do everything you want to do. 
You have to preach and shepherd and do what's needed. Otherwise, I would be preaching much different stuff if I could just preach what I wanted because my heart is thrilled with this whole section of Isaiah 61. It's what I feel I was created for. I live for this. And then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up former devastations. They'll repair ruined cities. We're not talking about buildings. Cities. The desolations, not just of a generation, of generations. Six generations, eight generations of dysfunction. And the Spirit of the Lord breaks it and starts a whole new life for a family line. That is like thrills my soul. It's one of the only thing that really makes me cry is when I see the Spirit of the Lord melt people's hearts and break bondages. Everything, it melts me every time. Like when I was in revival, like back in the 90s, I just, I would cry all the time because I'm just like, God is moving in a way no human can move. And I love shepherding and counseling and pastoral care. But I'll tell you, when the Spirit jumps in and slams someone against the wall, I'm not talking about courtesy pushes. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Receive. Bam. I said receive. Boom, boom. Yeah, don't mess around and, you know, resist the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm not talking that. I'm talking legitimate intervention of the Holy Spirit where demonstrations, like God says, the one that raised Christ from the dead, we think like, Holy Ghost, when we sing a worship song, we get a goosebump, and we're like, oh, the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about Holy Spirit, who like, God said, let there be light, and he releases the greatest explosion of light that ever was. Like, the Holy Spirit, that kind of Holy Spirit. Ooh, yeah, I need the gym. And it's not a good idea to preach after dinner. <laughs> they will rebuild the former desolations, rep repair ruined cities, desolations of generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be farmers and vine dressers. That's a good one for you, Steph. This is really about like God will bring foreigners from afar to partake of what he's doing in God's people. It speaks of evangelism and increase and bringing people in that the strangers will be brought to families. The disenfranchised brought into a place of belonging. Oh, come on. You will be called, will be identified as priests and ministers of our, of our God. Not business owners and things like that. Oh, he is a man of God right there. That's what stands out to people because they're like, yeah, everyone's a business owner. Everyone's like a teacher or whatever. But man, God is on this brother. This guy at work, you got to meet him. He's a priest of God. It's like that becomes your identity, Right? Listen to this. How funny. You will eat the wealth of nations. You will boast in their riches. Instead of shame, you'll have double portion. Instead of humiliation, you will shout for joy. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in the land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. 
For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. I will faithfully give them their reward, an everlasting covenant with them. Listen to the intensity of this. Their offspring will be known among the nations. Like, that is a word to everyone in the next generation in this place. According to the vision God gives us, and I believe he's going to fulfill it, you will be influential and renowned because of our obedience. Oh, that's kind of proud. No. No, it's actually generational blessing. My kids will have the financial ability to do things that I could not do until now. That's a blessing. You're passing on generational blessing. And that's why everyone under the age of 30 in here, you have, you are going to be blessed by this church because your children and their children will be able to receive blessing and honor from it. Because of the labor and the sacrifice that we do, we hopefully, you will not have to do as much. You'll do it in a different way and build in a whole other way. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will be joyful. This is all what we talked about in worship. He's clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a groom puts on a turban and a bride adorns herself with jewels. As the earth produces sprouts, as the garden causes things sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. In us is implied. In us. We become those turbans and those robes and those sprouts budding forth that the whole world, like Steve talked about in John 17, says, whoa, what is happening? They're seeing God because of one-mindedness and unity in what he wants to do in us. So when we look at all this, you know, just as a, as a place, you know, when, when we see this, we see a story and a progression here. But really, my role is to talk about vision and mission. And vision is that overarching thing of what it is you're called to do. Right? And it's to, by the Spirit, bring freedom and healing and restoration so that we become in a place of strength, community, relationship. Second part of Isaiah 61. So that we can reform the nations of the earth. That is the third part. And so it's, that is the vision. Very cut and clear. You're like, well, that's not like helping unwed mothers. Well, yeah, I know, because God is big, and Isaiah 61 is the blueprint. It's about bringing someone from the very beginnings of healing to making them a discipler of nations, one who reforms and repairs desolations of generations. It's about this whole expression of God in humans. It doesn't stop with you being discipled and becoming a planting of the Lord in the church. It stops with the entire globe being influenced by the renown and the glory and the the gospel of Christ. That's where it stops. It is not an end. And so when we look at this, like you say, well, gosh, how as a church do we do those things? Well, we set free people and, and facilitate that whole thing with Christ through encounters, through journey. We do it through things like FMO and the Conquering Series and all the different shepherding things where we help people grow beyond their places, their issues, their dysfunctions. But guys, it should end. Done. 
We're through it. And now we become plantings of the Lord. We get established. We get, begin to get strengthened and grow as the glorious church. And that's why I want to challenge you, for those of you who have lingered and lingered for decades in dysfunction, break the link and encounter God and move on. It's not that we're perfect. We're just mature. And it's this whole thing. we got to exchange that, right? Now, how as a church are we involved in people being planted as trees? We have first principles. We have our leaders track. We have internships. We have Dreamers Ranch does a lot of this kind of establishing and challenging, discipling. We have an academy that's literally discipling families. And I want you to see that this was all intentional. We didn't say, oh, how can we fit what we're doing in? No, we intentionally design these things. We don't have a leader's track because we want to make people jump through academic hoops. What a bunch of... What a waste of time. No, it's wanting people to grow in maturity and commit to a lifelong process of being transformed by the Holy Spirit and not trapped in dead religion because that's where you'll end up if you stop. Clap more than that, folks. <clears throat> Dang it. I don't know if you realize how terrible dead religion is. Really. It's dead. It's a waste. It's sick. It smells. Then finally, this rebuilding the ruins. It's what fire and ice and pumpkin fest and Christmas at the crossing are about. They're not for us to have fun. Like, we're not, our whole mission and outreach isn't built just to make the church fat. Remember, we're trying to start to turn over a new leaf and get all skinny and... <laughs> These things, Dreamer's Ranch, this farm... This farm isn't because we just chose something. Here she comes. He's getting ready to finalize it. So I want to sh share because the fire of God is, is, is moving right now, okay? But what God is wanting to do in this hour, and we're talking about unity, we need to bring that whole spiritual concept of unity that he's talking about. The Isaiah 61, when we hear it, we think of it in terms of a spiritual experience. And God's wanting us to take that spiritual experience and bring it down into a natural context. And what God has given us here, and so we have, we have our, our um, your family as a, as a mission center. I don't know if you've taken first principles. We know that our, our, our personal nuclear family should be a miss, mission center that are attached to the family of families, which is another mission center. And then God here has given us another layer on that as being a regional mission center as well. And so there's context for this church in the natural, the, the building the desolations of many generations is the regenerating of the soil of, of where a city set on a hill here. And God is wanting us to be a light and for the people to see by our good works. And he's wanting to take the supernatural fire of God and empower it into a very natural place that we can create a space for the gospel, that we're a place that serves the community in the natural. And so when we, when we see the farm, guys, I didn't choose to be a farmer. Okay, everybody's like, oh, you know, I'm so glad that you love that. I said yes to Jesus. That's it. 
I had no dream of being a farmer when I was little. I never dreamed of owning cows. I never saw anything like that. And we had a camp, and I was there, and this man looked at me, and he said, why don't you have cattle? And I said, why would I have cattle? Like, what do you, what do you even mean? And as he began to share his vision for cattle farm, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about the soil and about kids' lives and the soil of people's hearts and broken people that he wanted to make them a planting of the Lord. And so even now, there's a parallel prophetically of what we're doing in the soil of this land. We received a farm supernaturally. I mean, I don't know if you guys realize that we didn't even look around and go, oh, there's a farm for us to buy. Mary Taylor looked at us and said, Sean, this is your land. How can we make this work? And then after we bought that side, we came over here and bought this side, which was more expensive, and we put less down on it. Supernaturally, God wanted us to have this land, and so he gave us a farm for whatever reason in his mind that he thought that that would be, but that's what we've been given to steward. But as we're stewarding it, it was a farm that had gone into disrepair. It had closed. The cattle had not been on it. The soil is in utter ruins. And God is causing us to regenerate the soil through regenerative farming, which is multi-species farming that produces health in the soil. Every part, every different species playing its part, every person in here having a role to, to put forth. And you come and you labor and you're in the work of your hands and the labor of your soul. And I'm talking about physical labor as well as spiritual labor in the supernatural. Both of those things come along and they begin to regenerate the soil of the church and the soil of the region. And as one, the unity of us, we become a light on a hill that serves the whole southern New Hampshire region. And we become a space for the gospel. That service brings the broken in. And then we do, we, the unwed mothers and all the different, the, the drug addicts, everybody, we become a resource that we're here and we're saying we're going to regenerate the soil of your hearts by the power of the Spirit of God. So the fire that's on what he's saying, it is a natural, there's a natural outworking of it in this church family. If you're a part of it, God is wanting us to come and partner in the school, in, in Dreamer's Ranch, in the garden, in the formal garden, in the youth center that we're building this spring. All of these things are natural outworkings that God is saying, come together and spend your life for the legacy of the generations. Because what we're leaving, it's not just some sort of mystical, spiritual thing out there. We are building a city set on the hill. And this building, this land here is going to speak the word of God for generations generations to come but that's not going to happen in some mystical thing we have got to literally build the house we've got to build the house and so we need to make this crossover that we're not just doing spiritual things we're setting people free unto a natural mission in the earth jesus did good works he's at, it's one of the requirements of leadership to do good works and that word works means labor it means work. It means giving of your life's energy, like physical energy. Because there, it says faith without works is dead. And so there's this requirement of giving not just our hearts, but our entire lives for the mission of the kingdom. Here, Steph. 
stuff. I told you, and it was exactly like I said, too. I'm going to just, I'm going to wrap up here and just hit on a couple, because we, we talked a lot about vision, and I just shared some ways, like, that we do things like encounters, journey, to set people free, the planting of the Lord section is all done by first principles, leaders tracks, internships, you know, Dreamers Ranch, some aspects of the empowerment of kids, mentoring academy, mentoring families. It's one of the most remarkable things I've witnessed. You know, the elders have worked, labored hard trying to work with parents and, and parenting and everything. And I, I feel like more has happened through this academy in such a, a drilling down of like real progress than anything I've ever seen in this area. And I'm so excited by it and I'm so grateful for the teachers and, you know, all the people who have helped just spearhead this thing. I mean, this was like, this was one of those things we heard from God and then said, how can we do this in like three months? And all the approvals, everything just went, just, we just shot through. But I want to I speak to a, some real drilling down specifics and leave you with them because it's going to affect this whole year. As we've looked over the year and we've talked about our calendar for the year and we're going to be getting that out. It's, we started trying to like really weigh what we're doing because we have a big year ahead of us. You know, when we talk about mission, it's vision, it's, it's this, what do we want to accomplish? What, what do we want? But when we talk about mission, we talk about how will that happen? How will that be accomplished? Because like you talk about rebuilding the desolations of generations and repairing cities, ruined cities, all these things. There's a thousand ways you could accomplish that. Well, we really are saying like, Lord, we believe God is going to lead us through the right way. We wouldn't have chosen the farm as any way to get community influence. But it has been amazing what it has done. And so... I wanted to talk a little bit more about this whole idea of mission. You know, how will we accomplish it? You know, it's, it's going to be a big year. Great exploits, hard work, dedication, faithfulness, growth, harvest. Um, I ran across this quote uh, from this uh, one speaker. It's a prophetic voice. And I just was like, this is so good. She said, this is not going to be a little move of God. This is not a little increase in his glory, not a shallow, watered revival. It is not an emotional game for us to feel good for a moment of time. It's the heaviness of his stature in our midst. It's the revealing of him as king. God is coming in an utterly redefining move, listen, that we don't yet have the language for or the capacity to comprehend. It can't be pigeonholed, compared, or categorized. Now, I find that very critical because critical is, is, is important. <laughs> because, you know, some of us are uncomfortable because, like, we want all our questions answered. We want all the details. And I found one thing out with God. He doesn't care about answering your questions when you want them answered. And part of sonship and this place God wants to bring us into a deeper place of is trusting and obeying without all the questions answered 
but with the hope and certainty that in the right time, he will answer our questions. Because he has all the answers. But you know, I'm convinced over years of serving him, he doesn't want us to, to just step out after we get our questions answered. He wants us to go, yes, Dad, you got it. I trust you. And I don't need to know everything. Just tell me, what direction do I start walking? And we start walking that direction. And he goes, hey, by the way, in a day you're going to come to an intersection. Each take a right because I have a plan over in this area. And I'm going to lead you there. Yes, Lord, I trust that if I obey you, you'll lead me there. So there's a way to walk in faith when you don't really have all the answers. And I'm telling you this for a very specific reason. Because as a leadership team, we're being led the same way all of us are being led, which he doesn't give you most of the time because it, it works counterproductively to sonship and daughterhood and trust and obeying because then we know all the answers and we say, hey, we already got the blueprint and the, and the uh, manual from you, Lord, so we don't need you anymore. We got it. We, got, we know how to do this. He wants us to constantly depend and need him. And so part of what I'm sharing is like we're sharing the best that we know from our experience. And I believe it would not be unfair to say that we're tested and tried in taking big risks and hearing from the Lord and taking, you know, big, making big decisions without all the information. And it turns out okay. And we need to use the past to, to give us confidence of the future. And so, you know, one of the things that we just know is, is a very important thing is that in this next season, this next year, he's going to build community and family, this one-mindedness and this unity. And it's going to be a year of living stones, hospitality, caring for one another. God's bringing us into a place to prepare us for Isaiah 61, part three. And one of the the very tangible things that we're setting as a goal this year is we want to be in one service as one people um, next fall and not in this building and split up. We want one room. So we are going to set our hearts to renovate that whole steel building. Now that is going to be a youth center, multi-purpose, a gym that we can meet in on Sunday and use for whatever we need during the week. We had taken one previous offering for that because we were like really raring to go. It is time now. And we even have pictures. I looked at one in the kitchen. They put it on the fridge. But of all the young people laying their hands on the building and praying. You remember that? Well, there's not much that we've set our heart to do and obeyed God that he hasn't accomplished. I mean, look at the, the both sides of the property, the buildings. We're going to renovate that and then in order to accommodate in the fall, I think there's something like 25 or 30 students on the waiting list for the academy. So it's a lot of favor and that's just word of mouth. There is not, so we'll be up near 35 to 50 probably, I would say. So we're building classrooms outside the steel building, big bathroom, locker rooms, restrooms that'll allow p camps and conference, the, the camps, the Dreamers Ranch and base camp, they could use these facilities. All the classrooms, if we can do both sides, we'll do both sides. It'll beautify it. It won't look like a ratty old steel building anymore. And so we're having this multi-purpose, taking a frugal, a frugal approach 
at having another temporary house for us. And this is really fulfilling this whole second, this whole missional aspect of we build it and they will come. This is all, none of this is, that's not our church. That building is nothing more than a tool and a context for us to do the Lord's work in. This is what you got in your, get in your heads. It's not our building like, oh, are you going to have people come into our sanctuary? We're, we're, what? Yours? It's a Lord's sanctuary. And I'll tell you what, he cares a lot about people outside the church. A lot. To the point of bloodshed. You know, and for those of you who are saying like, so I want you to know, like March, we're trying to like get everything ready so we can just begin to start at it. Uh, August, breakthrough day, grand opening, school opens there, church meets there after the tent, right? So guys, we're going to try to get some turf down so you guys don't complain about the rocks. We're doing everything we can to make that place posh. You might even be able to wear high heels in it, I'll tell you. Maybe we can have a red carpet from the bus for women to just walk down on high heels. And and then finally, you know, those of you are saying, you know, I'm a missionary at heart. I have a heart for the nations. You're not saying anything. Folks, I do too. There's a good half of a year. I was in Netherlands two weeks out of every month because I was working and laboring over there in the gospel and I'm saying that will come believe me if there's anyone itching to just start going all over the place it would be me but I know where I'm supposed to be I know what I'm supposed to do and it's to build this place as an apostolic hub and I'll tell you this place we will see the word fulfilled this will be like a massive international airport here. Comings and goings of missions and sorties and, you know, all kinds of different trips coming and going from the nations. We'll have international gatherings every year. We'll have that. It's just, we are waiting on the Lord. We're not going to jump ahead of Him. But when that time comes, we will be a church on a hill and we will have a massive complex up there. It will house our high school that God is going to launch and build. It will have a dormitory building. We'll have a school of ministry. We'll have a massive sanctuary that will all be built by a master construction designer. And when we outgrow the middle part of the sanctuary, we'll just knock the walls over and it'll triple in size. We'll have foundation footings for a balcony that could just be popped right up because the footings are already in the ground planned by the master engineer. This place will be an amazing center, but it's not so that we can have a nice little church building. It's going to be a resource center. It's going to be a campus. It's going to be an airport for missions. We're the people of God. We're just using it as a home base of operation to release the light of heaven, to be a, an oasis. secret strategic headquarters for reformation so 
I want to pray and I want to ask that the Lord would seal your hearts, that you couldn't even sleep at night. You sleep, you'll sleep, but that you wouldn't be able to go one night of sleep without having some kind of dream and vision from the Lord. Ask Him to just prepare your hearts. I mean, gosh, He speaks through the worship team. He speaks through the body of what He's wanting to do. It's a, it's a united, you know, voice that's just coming forth, confirming. This is supernatural stuff, guys. Do you know, even if we wanted to meet in the steel building, before this time, we weren't allowed because of zoning. It could only be used in as, as an accessory use to the daycare. That's it. We could stretch it and say, well, it's families of the church. Church, daycare, families. But then some wonderful Bedford legislator decided to pass a law last year that said churches cannot be restricted in any way by planning or zoning regulations. That took effect in January, which means we can just go and say, we're going to meet as a church in here. It's going to be a multi-purpose room. We're going to have an academy here. We're going to have a youth center. It's going to be amazing, young adults. And then we're going to put it on the plan. We're building a big building. We're going to have dormitories, which isn't allowed. And we're going to have a school, and we're going to have a sanctuary, and all this stuff. And they're going to just have to go, okay. We're going to do that all, and then we're going to pray and walk in obedience and trust with God and say, Lord, whatever way you, whatever you need to do, we're, we're, we're pliable servants in your hands. Teach us to be sons and daughters. Okay, Lord. I pray that you make us one, Lord, as you and the Father are one. And I pray you do this, that the world would know you sent us. I pray for each person here that they would be willing and pliable. Same heart, one mind, one heart, one spirit. To seek after what you're placing before us. Lord, even if they can't see it or don't feel the unction, they'd they trust the gifts you've given to them out of Ephesians 4 to show the way these gifts that are strong in leading the way. Pray you bless each person here, Father. We thank you for the incredible time of prosperity that has come and is happening in our midst. And Lord, we pray, we say, Lord, speak and we will obey. Speak to us. Do your work in our, in our midst. Establish us in your vision and your mission. Let us be that Isaiah 61 house, Father. I pray for each person in here that doesn't know you, and I thank you so much for bringing them here tonight to just catch a glimpse of your heart, your loving heart that's full of mercy and forgiveness and grace that wants all to be brought into his heart in his embrace. Lord, I pray your spirit would just speak and move in a powerful way. Come on, respond to him, because I know he's, he's speaking to hearts. I know he's resonating things. I know he's challenging repentance. He always does. 
I don't think there's a message I preach where I don't hear the Lord say, hey, Sean. I'm like, yeah, Lord, okay. Changing, it's time to change your mind. It's time to repent. So talk to God right now. Respond to God. I feel like, too, there's people here that you you really are in a place where as Michael is crying out, saying, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. You are here tonight because he's calling you to come to him. And as we're all responding, I'd like the life group leaders and elders to come up and let's just receive people who want prayer, especially, you know, if you have prayer for anything, welcome to come up and agree in prayer. But I want to challenge those of you who, when Michael was speaking and, and he was saying, just come to Jesus, I feel like there's people here that need to come to Jesus. You don't know him in a, you know him in a dead religious way, which isn't fun. He wants to know you and speak to you, to teach him, teach you his ways. To redeem things that you thought were impossible to change. And he's like, no, I have all the power you need. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Come on, respond to God here.